0: Welcome to another Griffith University podcast.
1: Thanks for coming everyone. Uh, my name is Luis Cabrera. I'm the co-convener of the Griffith Asia Institute weekly seminar, research seminar, and today we are pleased to welcome Dr. Michael Clark, Associate Professor at the National Security College of ANU and Director of the ANU Indiana University Pan-Asia Institute. Um, internationally recognized expert in history and politics of the Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region in the People's Republic of China and on uh, Chinese foreign policy and many other issues. He was a Griffith staff member from 2007 to 2014 and he's co-authored some things with Andrew O'Neill and Stephen Fruling. and among many others. He's got many books on here. I won't read them all to you, um, but he's also, so the most recent book would be the one with uh, the 2016, or 2018. So, editor of Terrorism and Counterterrorism in China, Domestic and Foreign Policy Dimensions with Hearst Oxford in 2018, and his commentary on these areas of expertise has been published by Foreign Policy, The Wall Street Journal, CNN, BBC News, The Diplomat, The Age, The Australian, and the South China Morning Post. As well as the national interest and War on the Rocks, amongst others, very, very impressive. Uh, welcome, and uh, we'll uh, we'll go for about forty minutes, and then, as usual, open it up for questions. After.
2: Great. Uh, thank you for the introduction. Um, so, I just want to quickly uh, give you an idea of hopefully um, what I hope to get through uh, in our forty minutes or so um, this afternoon. So, speci- specifically framed around this idea of the Xinjiang emergency, uh, exploring. What, in fact, it constitutes? Uh, what is the evidence? Who are the targets of China's uh, campaign of re-education? What's the ultimate purpose? But more specifically, the real crux of, of my presentation today concerns this question about how did we how did we get here? Uh, in, in effect, how did uh, the Chinese Communist Party, uh, a political organisation uh, that, uh, from the establishment of the PRC in 1949, uh, at least theoretically maintained uh, the the basis for, I uh, suppose, a supposed form of pluralism within the PRC, recognition of ethnic minority rights, uh, and so on, how did we get to this point, uh, is kind of the, the, this sort of $100,000 $100, question in some ways for many of us following this. Uh, and finally, towards, towards the end, uh, perhaps touch on a few themes about what does this mean uh, in a broader sense for China's domestic politics and governance, but also some of the implications... Uh, for China's foreign policy moving forward. So, the Xinjiang emergency, what is the evidence um, that we have at the moment? So where does it come from? Uh, Essentially we have a range of different sources of evidence. Uh, One uh, most directly is uh, the documentation of the Chinese Communist Party and the Chinese state itself. Uh, in particular, uh, and this is something that Adrian Zenz, uh, who was on Four Corners uh, documentary the other night, a uh, German scholar has really pioneered, really data mining uh, analysis of a government uh, contracts, for instance, for the construction of some of these facilities, and also uh, the regional government's public security budgets. We can, I'll throw up a couple of graphs uh, later on that track that. Um, Another means of gathering evidence for this is exploring uh, and tracking uh, the evolution of government regulations and policy directives specifically around uh, concepts related to uh, re-education, uh, and I'll dig down a little bit, uh, in a little bit more detail soon about, about what I mean by that. So one example here, um, in terms of this, you might have seen numbers that are often bandied about, saying one somewhere between one and three million. Uh, Uyghurs and other Turkic minorities are currently in re-education. The basis for some of these figures, uh, particularly the, the lower end of the spectrum, is, is from directly from government-level... Uh, documentation. So there's one example from 2017 where you have quite precise numbers uh, of internees at county-level centres uh, amounting to, as you can see, over 800,000 people. Uh, so that was back in 2017. But I'd note that that figure itself excludes major municipal-level administrative units such as the big big cities such as Kashgar and Urumqi. Uh, so that figure was, in 2017, already much higher than that. Uh, 892,000 would suggest. There's also further anecdotal uh, material here. Uh, There's some leaks from from government officials in Kashgar and the far south of Xinjiang, which essentially suggested that they were given top-down directives to essentially have detentions via quota. In some instances, somewhere between 10% and 40% of the population in any given uh, locality at any time. Uh, Another stream of evidence comes from uh, tracking the changing bureaucratic nomenclature around re-education and around the so-called detention uh, centres or camps, and also the wider ideological narrative and discourse that the CCP has constructed around uh, the the entire process of of re-education. Finally, there is also open-source research, uh, most particularly uh, Google Earth satellite imaging, uh, so a number of uh, researchers internationally have pioneered this. So there was a, there's a, um, a graduate law student at the University of British Columbia, in fact, Sean Zung, who's pioneered uh, some of this. Uh, and you can go onto his, his website and explore uh, some of, the, some of the, the sites that he's tracked and found. Um, ASPI, the Australian, Australian Strategic Policy Institute, also released a report uh, at the end of last year that focused specifically on, I think, a group of 28 suspected sites which also used some of this open open source uh, satellite imagery uh, to track uh, the development and construction of some of these uh, facilities. Uh, finally, we also have limited at this stage, but a collection of testimony from from inmates uh, of the centres and also some of the affected families as well. So there's quite a stream of, of, of evidence here. Um, this particular examples is uh, from some of uh, Adrian Zenz's uh, research uh, from last year, specifically tracking uh, public security spending uh, from the, the Xinjiang Regional Government. Uh, and you can see uh, the exponential growth in some of uh, the sort of budget items in there, particularly around uh, this idea of uh, um, detention uh, centre management and construction. <coughs> uh, so Adrian's done a, quite, quite a great deal of work on, on mapping... Uh, the, the growth of, of these figures over time. Um, this particular uh, graph is from uh, the MacArthur Institute in Berlin, who have also partnered in, in some sense with Adrian to do some of this work uh, and I draw some, some interesting material here. The blue line is public security spending, so you can see that exponential increase from 2016. Onwards, uh, the other interesting figure is the yellow line, which is criminal arrests in Xinjiang. Uh, so you can see from 2016 to 2017, you have an enormous jump in criminal arrests. So that that figure is around 229,000, I think, from memory. So in 2017, that constituted around 24% of all criminal arrests in the PRC. Uh, and to give you an idea of, uh, of the relative weight of that, Xinjiang only accounts for around 1%, I think maybe not even 1% of China's total population. So uh, there's a, a, a stream of evidence that suggests the, the scale uh, of the detentions and arrests in Xinjiang. Another interesting uh, form of, of, of evidence for this is also concerns um, what some have dubbed the political economy of the carceral estate uh, established in Xinjiang. Uh, and so this, uh, from, from The Economist, Uh, tracks uh, fixed asset investment by corporate entities in Xinjiang over time. And again, you can see a a trend emerging from around 2015 onwards, uh, a rapid increase in uh, fixed asset investment by public uh, entities in Xinjiang and a declining one from from the private sector. Uh, And so this generally, the the line of argument here is that this reflects uh, increasing uh, central investment via uh, state entities in Xinjiang, such as the Xinjiang Production and Construction Corps or the Bingtuan, uh, to construct these facilities, run and manage uh, these facilities as well. So there's not only a, a political and social effect to, to the mass detentions, but also an effect on, uh, on the region's economy. Another means by which we have been able to to explore some of the evidence uh, for the existence of of the camps and their nature concerns the shifting uh, nomenclature around the camps themselves. Uh, So at this stage there's around eight different varieties in a sense uh, or or eight different terms uh, that have been deployed by the Chinese uh, government in Xinjiang uh, to refer to some of these detention centres and uh, as you can see there's a a range of different uh, forms. Uh, However, they all come uh, under, uh, referred to as re-education institutions. Uh, It's important to note as well that the the reason for the variety, in a sense, is not simply for obfuscation for external observers trying to track this. It also suggests there's a continuum of detention and indoctrination and training facilities that are involved here. So an individual, for instance, can be taken into one of the centralised, the number one there, the Centralised Transformations through Education Training Centre, uh, and can then find themselves at various points in that in that process, then transferred to one of the other facilities, depending on uh, the various criteria for judging the severity or otherwise of, of their alleged uh, crimes or, or deviant behaviour, as the party might, might term it. Additionally, as well, uh, there are a range of different forms of detention. Uh, Some of these may, in fact, be indefinite detention with people uh, in these for very long periods of time. Others may, in fact, be very short-term. There's anecdotal evidence suggesting, in a sense, that some of these are, in fact, day-type facilities uh, where individuals will report uh, there at 9 o'clock in the morning and then return Uh, to their own homes at 4pm, right through to ones that are much more indefinite forms of detention. Uh, In terms of satellite imagery, uh, this particular site is uh, the uh, Dabanchang uh, Detention Centre, which has been estimated to be one of the largest uh, that's been tracked using uh, Google satellite imagery. So the one on the left is the same site in 2005 uh, where there is in fact no Facility at all. Um, the, the piece in, in the, the, the centre, in the, the red highlight at the in the bottom right-hand corner, is the township of Devonshire. Uh, and if we go to the picture on the right, that is in 2018, and the size of of, of the uh, new facility that's been built, and this gives you a close-up uh, of the scale uh, that we're talking about uh, talking about here. So it's around it's over three kilometre site uh, that's been constructed uh, within the last the last few years consisting of a compound of, uh, of large-scale buildings, uh, police barracks uh, and so on. Um, and this, some of uh, some of the visual uh, evidence that we have for this has actually been uh, produced by the Chinese Communist Party itself. Some of these photos have been taken from the Weibo accounts of CCB Carters uh, in Xinjiang. Uh, so the one on the, the left there is a, quote-unquote, a classroom in one of the education centres, uh, and you can see, uh, in effect, that we're talking about a form of uh, detention uh, very clearly with the, uh, the metal barrier there that is supposed to separate the, the teacher uh, from, from, from the pupils as a security measure. Uh, the one on the right is the official opening of a detention centre in, in Hotan in, in the far south of Xinjiang, and that was taken in 2017, uh, that particular photo. Um, There's also been, this is again related to the the Google uh, satellite imagery, Uh, this is from Sean Zhang's work, Uh, he's mapped uh, in a quite detailed fashion over a hundred different sites uh, throughout Xinjiang over the last two to three years, Uh, and in fact, the number of sites is increasing. There has been evidence of construction of new facilities. Uh, So there's sort of no end point uh, at the moment to the construction of these facilities. Um, The next question uh, that has come to mind, in effect, is who are the the targets uh, of this particular campaign? Uh, Very simply, they are Turkic Muslims, primarily Uyghurs, Kazakhs and Kyrgyz, but also some evidence of Hui, the the Chinese... uh, Ethnically Chinese Muslims, as well, being caught up in the re education uh, uh, campaign and process. Uh, interestingly, you have a shift uh, from the initiation of, of the re education uh, campaign in 2015, where you had initially targeting of particular sectors of Uyghur and other Turkic Muslim societies, particularly uh, males uh, within a lower social economic spectrum. Of development, uh, but from 2018 uh, we've seen uh, a very clear and explicit targeting of all strata of, of ethnic minority society, particularly in, again uh, with respect to, to, to Uyghur society, uh, especially. Uh, and in particular, what's interesting here is uh, the targeting explicitly of ethnic minority elites and intelligentsia, so doctors, artists, musicians. Uh, Intellectuals and even quite high government officials that have found themselves uh, caught up uh, in the uh, the re-education process. Uh, One particular group of which I'm involved is the concerned scholars of Xinjiang. We've documented over 600 uh, individual cases of intellectuals and artists, uh, in effect, being disappeared into the camps as of uh, March uh, this 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 year. Uh, another interesting question uh, that some of us have followed is whether in fact there's a, a rural and urban divide in terms of uh, the people being targeted. Uh, interestingly, the prototype of the Transformation 3 education camps, which was begun in, in fact in 2014, uh, was piloted in the far south of Xinjiang in Kashgar and Khotan. So it's the traditional, uh, <coughs> traditional heartland of, of, of Uyghur society. Um, as well. So, how then are uh, individuals? How 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 then does the state target uh, specific individuals to be sent to re-education? And this is from uh, courtesy of my colleague uh, Darren Byler at the uh, University of Washington uh, in in Seattle. Uh, and he's tracked again some of this via uh, the uh, posting of some documentation and photos from CCP carters themselves in Xinjiang. Uh, And this is from a manual uh, that CCP CCP carders were given at the beginning of the re-education campaign uh, to help them identify individuals that should uh, find themselves within the re-education process. So it gives you an idea of uh, uh, the scale uh, and scope of the re-education campaign. in particular, uh, some of the the latter ones about possessing religious knowledge, visiting banned countries and so on, uh, really do cast a very very wide net, uh, particularly within uh, Uyghur society as well. So the wider question uh, uh, from all of this is what is the ultimate purpose of of these centres and camps? Uh, And again... We can, in fact, use some public pronouncements to give us a pretty clear idea here. And this is from Sinjang Rabao uh, in November last year. It says, Vocational skills education training centres uh, wash clean the brains of people who become bewitched by extreme religious ideologies in the three forces. So the three forces is uh, separatism, terrorism and extremism. Uh, another, a much more explicit one, is from a... Uh, county level Justice Bureau work report in 2017 said transformation through education must wash brains, cleanse hearts, support the right, remove the wrong. We also have testimony uh, from, again, a quite limited set of testimonies from individuals uh, that have subsequently a very small number have been released from these facilities and been able to escape abroad. Uh, One in particular is from a a lady called Miragol Tersan Uh, who was married to an Egyptian, which was a red flag to the authorities. She returned to Xinjiang and found herself and her three children uh, detained in re-education camps. So she has quite a detailed uh, account of her conditions in captivity, so overcrowding in cells, dosage of unknown drugs to female prisoners, which uh, stopped uh, periods uh, for for menstruating women uh, n- a range of invasive techniques that you would most people would qualify as torture from uh, waterboarding through to ex- uh, electrocutions and so on we also have very clear evidence now and again this was documented in the Four corners story earlier this week separation of minors uh, from parents particularly uh, parents uh, sorry particularly uh, children who's Uh, both their mother and father have been detained in camps, find themselves sent to state-run orphanages. So the big question, uh, again overarching all this, uh, as I mentioned at the top, is how do do we get here? Uh, And in thinking about this question, uh, myself and a number of uh, colleagues have sort of had a little bit of to-and-fro debate about this, and it seems to me that we can't can't divorce uh, this from the question of colonialism. Uh, in particular, uh, this quotation from Patrick Wolfe, who's an Australian historian who's done a lot of work on uh, colonial, sett- settler colonialism in Australia, particularly around Indigenous peoples and the Stolen Generation, uh, suggests colonialism strives for the dissolution of native societies and erects a new colonial society on the expropriated land base. Um, to me, uh, this uh, has some uh, strong resonance uh, with the history of Xinjiang, under the PRC since 1949. Uh, and in particular, the issue labelling uh, the CCP's strategy in Xinjiang since 1949 as colonialism is still controversial uh, in the field, uh, yet I think it, it holds in a number of respects, particularly if we envisage Xinjiang, Xinjiang through its uh, history as a geo, both a geopolitical and ethnic frontier. Uh, Xinjiang has always been constructed... Uh, in a a manner that is is cognate uh, to to a lot of uh, settler colonial societies and territories. Uh, Post-1949, the objective of the CCP has always remained the same. It's been integration of the territory, of Xinjiang, but also the acculturation of the non-Han Chinese ethnic groups that, that populate it. So that objective has never changed. The fluctuations have really concerned the means by which the party has attempted to achieve those <coughs> objectives. Uh, and particularly since 1978 and Deng Xiaoping's uh, reform and opening uh, after the Maoist era, you have a range of different, different forms of strategies uh, that those means have, have undertaken. Most particularly in the last two to three decades, it's focused on a number of key themes of development, uh, modernisation, urban, rapid urbanisation, also demographic change in Xinjiang. And all of those different themes have been encapsulated in some of the big uh, state-level campaigns with respect to Xinjiang and also other ethnic minority regions, such as Jiang Zemin's Great Western Development Strategy, which was launched in 1999, and also more recently Xi Jinping's Belt and Road Initiative. So the Great Western Development and the Belt and Road Initiative, from my perspective, have have in fact been uh, very clearly linked. Uh, The Great Western Development, uh, Development Strategy was explicitly uh, internal in orientation, but it was about tying ethnic minority regions, such as Xinjiang, but also Tibet, much more tightly uh, to the interior of the PRC through through, uh, infrastructure developments and also uh, the encouragement of Han Chinese settlement, particularly in Xinjiang, uh, of of that region. And and those themes have only continued under the Belt and Road uh, since 2013. So, this colonial situation has inevitably resulted in phases of, of Uyghur opposition and, and resistance, which can be broken into a number of different phases, uh, although there are exceptions within each of these, these particular phases. From 1949 to around 1990, most uh, Uyghur opposition dissent uh, and, in fact, uh, uh, armed resistance was minimal. Uh, if it did occur, it was nationalist and separatist in orientation post-1990, however, we have a trend of the increasing uh, uh, ethno-religious framing of Uyghur resistance uh, in Xinjiang, and, and this has really increased uh, post-9-11 post as well, and I'll talk a little bit about the impact of, of that uh, shortly. Over The consistent themes uh, throughout this in terms of looking at Uyghur <coughs> resistance and opposition, uh, if you track, track this and also uh, look at uh, the narrative that's been put out by a number of Uyghur advocacy groups within the diaspora, uh, the themes are consistent right across that period from 1949 to the present. It really concerns issues of Uyghur political, economic, cultural and demographic uh, marginalisation. Politically, of course, the Uyghur have been and other ethnic minorities have been man- marginalised since 1949 uh, where they are under- underrepresented within the regional CCP uh, uh, hierarchy. Uh, economically, certainly uh, since uh, the, the the mid-1990s, you've seen uh, an economic marginalisation of the Uyghur, largely as a result of state-led investment in, in large-scale infrastructure projects which have placed pressure on uh, the region's environment. Uh, rapid urbanization's put... put creates further uh, inter-ethnic tensions within urban areas about access to land and so on. Uh, so these have all increased over time and continue to be points of uh, opposition. So this colonial situation, uh, in particular, from, from my perspective, is sort of trying to, to, to nut out uh, a, a line of, of causality in some ways about why the party has turned towards re-education at this particular juncture. You know, why, why now? Why not 10, 15, 20 years ago? Uh, This particular issue looms large, the issue of Uyghur terrorism and in particular the securitisation of of Uyghur identity uh, that has taken place uh, since 2000 2001. Um, Particularly important here is uh, the... CCP's narrative or discourse that it's established around Uyghur militancy and terrorism. So in 2002, just a few months after the events of 9-11, China released its first white paper uh, detailing alleged terrorist attacks in Xinjiang uh, by one particular group uh, that it called the East Turkestan Islamic Movement. So from 1990 to 2001, that that document uh, lays out uh, in quite uh, interesting detail uh, a range of different incidents that it labels as terrorism, uh, and of course, within that discourse, the party, of the, the the official line does not uh, distinguish between uh, acts that we would term civil disobedience or protest from uh, more obvious acts of, of terrorism. So, for instance, in that nineteen ninety to two thousand and one period, that document identifies the Kulja incident, which was a, a mass protest against. Uh, CCP efforts to clamp down on mosque construction uh, in Ili, and the far northwest of Xinjiang. Uh, that resulted in a riot and the PLA having to come in and disperse uh, crowds. That was classified as a terrorist uh, attack uh, within by, 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 by Beijing. And so so that sort of theme has, has continued uh, throughout. Uh, additionally, What's interesting uh, about the post-2001 uh, period, you have the bedding down of this discourse of the three evils, um, which I mentioned before. So the three evils are separatism, terrorism and extremism, uh, to, to frame the issue of, of, of uh, security threats or challenges within Xinjiang. Uh, And and that discourse was, in fact, embedded in the mid-to-late 1990s, before September 11, yet post-September 11, it really gains uh, the sort of prominence that uh, that has really driven policy. Um, The next interesting phase here, and this is one that I really have identified as being key to understanding the turn towards re-education, is from 2009 to the present, uh, where you have, uh, in fact, a demonstrated upswing in a number of violent incidents in Xinjiang that could be classified as terrorism. So you have around 98 incidents uh, resulting in approximately 700 deaths. Uh, and this is based not only on my own uh, tracking of, of reporting on incidents in Xinjiang, but also the University of Maryland's uh, terrorism database as well. Uh, so it's fairly, fairly well documented. So the party's response to this has, has taken on a number of, number of forms. Uh, and particularly uh, important in informing how the party responds to this, is the view that uh, Uyghur opposition has shifted from uh, ethno-religious orientations to what Mark Juergensmeyer once termed ideological religious nationalism. So this view that, in effect, uh, in the previous phase uh, of ethno-religious inspired violence and terrorism, where the focus, in a sense, was purely on the establishment of a Uyghur homeland, of various, uh, various uh, forms of independence, you now have a shift where you have a number of groups in particular <laughs> that frame their struggle in clearly ideological terms that map onto wider currents within regional and global uh, radical, is- radical Islamist inspired organisations such as al-Qaeda so there's a real shift here uh, and in particular uh, this links to what I've elsewhere termed the transnationalisation of Uyghur terrorism uh, where you have Again, this linkage between what's occurring in Xinjiang and wider currents of me, of uh, developments within uh, wider jihadist uh, tendencies. And that map I probably should have made a little bit bigger. Um, but that is uh, circuitous route by which uh, Uyghur militants... Uh, have undertaken journeys to to Syria uh, and Iraq. So there is one particular Uyghur militant organisation, the Turkestan Islamic Party, um, which has been well-documented as fighting in northern northern Syria, aligned with al-Qaeda's affiliates uh, there. So the effect of this in particular on the CCP has been quite stark. I would argue you've seen uh, in particular the development of a line of thinking about the need for what's termed a second generation of Minzu or or ethnic minority policy. So the first generation is generally conceived to have taken place from 1949 uh, really until the early 2000s. So this is the traditional approach of the CCP, which is the idea of national regional autonomy, i.e. we give uh, ethnic minorities, particularly concentrated ones such as the Uyghur or Tibetans, uh, we give them certain rights uh, under... The constitution, we give them particular forms of representation in various state level bodies, uh, we respect and protect ethnic minority languages and cultures, and so on. Post 2009, you have a debate within the party uh, that the first generation of minority policy had failed. Uh, and this is particularly relevant to Xinjiang. So, 2009, there was large scale inter ethnic rioting in Urumqi, the capital of Xinjiang, and this was seen by proponents of the second generation as fundamental proof that the first generation had failed, uh, that the party had failed uh, to integrate uh, Uyghurs and also to acculturate them uh, to the dominant norms of, of uh, the PRC uh, identity and society more broadly. Particularly important in this regard is the relationship that the proponents of the second generation a view uh, as developing between the idea of development, modernity and identity. So for the advocates of the second generation minority policy, uh, the first generation assumption that we give minorities certain sets of rights, protections under the Constitution, while also uh, encouraging economic growth development uh, as a means of facilitating integration, assimilation has failed. Uh, And for the second generation proponents, the reason this fails in fact lies within the concept of ethnic identity itself. So for them, there is something intrinsic, particularly in Uyghur identity, that has prevented uh, modernity uh, and integration being, being realised. So this sort of forms the entry point, uh, I think, for the subsequent uh, so-called People's War on Terrorism uh, that President Xi Jinping uh, announced in 2014 after uh, the Kunming uh, train station attack in March, uh, March of, of that year. So the People's War on Terrorism uh, is a term that encompasses a number of different things, and I've termed them here, the modalities and methodologies of, of control. There's a number of different components here. So the first one, the modalities uh, of control, concern uh, what the party terms de-extremification, uh, and I'll talk a little bit about what that, that means in a moment, and also the development of what I've termed here a smart counterterrorism. Uh, this is essentially tech- built on technological innovation uh, and surveillance. The methodo- methodology uh, of control that underpins all of this, however, uh, I think is rendering of what Foucault uh, spoke of as biopolitics and what Carl Schmitt termed the politics of, of exclusion. So if we take uh, the first component of this, modalities of control, control Uh, What does de-extremification mean? Um, Most particularly, it is often held up to be China's version of uh, what's often termed in the West countering violent extremism or even counter-terrorism policy more broadly. So it's not simply just about uh, kinetic means of counter-terrorism, i.e. interdicting terrorists, killing terrorists, disrupting networks. It's also about uh, the non-kinetic elements of of that story, say, shaping... uh, societal expectations and narratives and so on. Uh, However, in the Chinese case, uh, the way in which which extremification, de-extremification is defined very clearly conflates markers of ethnic identity, particularly uh, Uyghur identity, with extremism. So it intersects with the wider discourse about the three evils uh, within Xinjiang. So in Xinjiang, the... uh, this is the regional government's own legislation on anti extremism defines extremification as speech and actions under the influence of extremism that imbue radical religious ideology and reject and interfere with normal production of livelihood. More importantly, this is followed by a list, a long list, uh, of supposed primary exp- expressions of extremism that range from wearing of headscarves right through to irregular beards and particular name selections for children. Uh, And this has been accompanied by a range of propaganda uh, campaigns throughout the region since 2014. Uh, So the first one there on the left uh, is depicting uh, Uyghur terrorists uh, or extremists running, uh, and this is running across the street like rats being killed by... Uh, by uh, uh, by the region's population of all national nationalities. So this is a riff on Xi Jinping's uh, phrase when he when he called on the people's war in 2014. He said to make uh, extremists like rats running across across the street. Uh, the one on the right is uh, perhaps a less overt uh, uh, extremification uh Narrative, but it nonetheless speaks to the party's materialist conception. I think, of the relationship between development and identity. Uh, so here you have a group of superstitious Muslims uh, bowing and praying at the mosque, counterposed with uh, a clearly Han Chinese scientist, uh, and so on. Uh, there are others uh, as well that give you a flavour of uh, some of the propaganda campaigns. Uh, so the one on the, the the top right is actually quite interesting. So this is this was actually related to the so-called Project Beauty campaign that was launched in 2012 uh, about discouraging ethnic minority women and particularly Uyghur women uh, from wearing uh, traditional forms of headscarves and veiling uh, as a means of of, of achieving uh, their liberation and modernity. The other leg uh, or the other modality of of, of this strategy of control concerns smart counterterrorism. So this is, in a sense, uh, counter-terrorism that has been enabled by the harnessing of a range of digital technologies uh, to instrumentalise this idea of a people's war on terrorism. And this has all been very, very well documented. You have uh, a web of checkpoints uh, throughout major urban areas, the rollout of facial recognition technology and devices at those checkpoints, but also at public places such as train stations and so on. You also have uh, the CCP and CCP-related agencies working very diligently on development of biometric uh, analysis uh, of, of Uyghur and other ethnic minority populations, uh, the imposition of Wi-Fi sniffers and so on. So all this is about har- harvesting as much data as possible on ethnic minority pop- populations to enable what's often termed in the literature predict- predictive forms of, of policing, uh, a way in which uh, the the party and the state can in fact intervene well before uh, any elements of this turn, turn violent. So the two photos there, one is from Ka- uh, the old town centre of Kashgar, uh, clearly uh, gives you a nice example of uh, the CCTV uh, cameras and surveillance that are pretty much... Uh, uh, a mainstay of major urban areas now. Uh, the, the picture on the bottom is actually a facial recognition kiosk um, that you have to go and scan your national identity card and have a facial recognition scan before uh, being permitted to enter a petrol station uh, in in a room. says. Uh, all pervasive, everyday forms of, of surveillance that have been rolled out. Uh, and again, to give you another flavour of this, this, is from my colleague uh, Darren Byler, from his, uh, he was recently in Turpan, in Xinjiang in 2018, and this is the main main train station, uh, where you have again, the 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 imposition of a number of these forms of surveillance and data harvesting, at these sort of everyday forms of. of 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 activity that individuals undertake. And and Darren actually has documented quite clearly how at these particular situations, there's two lines here. One is for Han uh, and one is for ethnic minorities and Uyghur. And and the Uyghur line, of course, moves much more slowly than the Han Chinese line. So, again, the the ways in which the surveillance impinges on on, on the ability of Uyghurs to carry out their everyday life. Um, More recently... There's also, uh, has been quite a bit of research on uh, essentially what has been surveillance uh, by, by app. Uh, so the party has rolled out what's termed the Joint Operations System in Xinjiang, uh, which again is a means of harvesting and, or hoovering up as much data as possible uh, from citizens' uh, smartphones and other electronic devices, which can then be used to aggregate data, or a range of different forms of data from blood type and height, right through to their their physical uh, gait for instance the way in which they walk uh, which then is then fed into a, a, a database which then notifies authorities as to whether particular in particular activities uh, are deemed to be suspicious uh, and for police to, to make a uh, particular interception or inquiries of a, of a particular individual yet at the same time uh, this has also been accompanied by traditional forms of mass mobilization. Uh, in particular, uh, the so-called "becoming family" campaign, which was launched in 2014, uh, which is essentially about having uh, around one million CCP cadres and also CCP Youth League uh, officials uh, deployed into the countryside, in particular in the south of Xinjiang, to go and live with "quote-unquote" their their Uyghur relatives, uh, and this is about promoting ideology, Han Chinese culture, but also to monitor behaviour. Uh, and interestingly, and that. The quote at the bottom there comes from a manual that was given to some of these officials in 2016 about the ultimate objective of this campaign. was to eradicate the Muslim but save the Chinese citizen. And so, again, some of these images are taken from Weibo accounts of CCP carters and, again, just courtesy of Darren Byler as well. So the photo on the left is an a, a elderly uh, Uyghur gentleman being compelled, in a sense, into a toast in his own home uh, with alcohol, uh, clearly uh, in violation of, of Islamic law and custom. Uh, this is another interesting, uh, interesting one. You have two uh, Han Chinese uh, Youth League workers... Sharing a bed with an elderly harm um, an elderly uh, Uyghur, a lady in her own home, so again this is a bit not only these pervasive forms of surveillance but the penetration of of, of Uyghur society by by the state at all levels so this leads uh, quite nicely into, I think, uh, the idea of the methodology of control here, which is essentially framed by transformation through education and the politics of exclusion. So transformation through re-education re- very clearly uh, uh, has parallels with Foucault's notion of biopolitics. Here you have a particular population which is now construed with an official discourse, official narrative as an almost biological threat uh, to the security, not only of the state, but wider Chinese society, and of course, political. Uh, so the, the notion of transformation through education has, in fact, a, a long uh, historical tradition in the PRC, uh, from the Lao Gai and uh, established uh, under Mao, the reform through through uh, through labour camps in the 1950s, but also more recently the uh, the precedent set by the repression of the Falun Gong in the late 1990s, uh, and this is where, in fact, the term transformation through education is first used. Uh, where you have Falun Gong uh, defined as a heterodox religion or, or a cult uh, that has to be uh, expunged. More importantly, the individuals, believers of Falun Gong, had to be transformed. And the methods uh, and language are actually quite similar to that used and deployed in Xinjiang as well. Uh, you have uh, essentially forms of of. of, of what used to be termed in the Cold War brainwashing of, of various times, so l- long exposure to propaganda videos, singing patriotic pro-CCP songs, and also engaging in self-criticism sessions uh, where the goal of course is to have <clears throat> have the individual repent uh, their beliefs uh, in uh, Falun Gong. <coughs> in Xinjiang you have echoes of uh, this more recent use of transformation through re-education, uh, in particular yes there are a range of uh, well documented statements from CCP officials here you have extremism uh, being uh, being argued to be akin to a drug addiction or a mental illness, so the individual has to be has to be taken to a re-education hospital for treatment uh, you also have to have uh, sorry pardon me there was also another very widely quoted uh, statement by a CCP youth official in 2017 uh, which suggested that Uh, re-education was like spraying weeds in a field. You have to spray all the weeds to make sure that they don't sprout back up. So just to to finish off, um, to make this connection between some of Foucault's work about the biopolitical nature of this. I think we can also usefully deploy Foucault's notion of, of governmentality and the panopticon here. So Foucault envisaged this as a, as a form of centralised or a one-way method of static surveillance, yet the system that's been established in Xinjiang, particularly the so-called smart or predictive policing element to this, is actually more akin to uh, what Manuel uh, de Lander uh, defines as a pan-spectron. Uh, so it's a much more fluid, much more dynamic form of surveillance. Uh, so he says the pan does not merely select certain bodies and certain data about them, rather it compiles information about all at the same time using computers to select the segments of data relevant to the surveillance task. And that's pretty much encapsulates, in particular, that particular app uh, that public security officials are using in Xinjiang. So it's real-time uh, analysis of uh, certain segments of the population, certain signs of deviancy that they may display. In Xinjiang, however, uh, the the most important element here is that this is underpinned by a racialised vision of social control that is ultimately designed to domesticate Uyghurs and to make them productive. To, sorry, to make them both productive and modern, and to fundamentally make them, quote unquote, uh, Chinese. And given the time, I'll just end there and talk about those series of photos, maybe in discussion.
1: Very chilling,
2: thank you.
0: Okay, we have uh, plenty of time for questions. So, thanks, Michael. Very comprehensive. I'm just wondering, I mean, you talk about the change in the policy. After 2009, I'm just wondering, is it because as a result of the senior leaders in the party sort of woke up, you know, things have going to be working, let's do it, or could they be uh, linked to identifiable institutional interests? You know, are there sort of disagreements, and uh, did they disagreements represent certain institutional yeah. interests? Mm-hmm. And the second related question is that there's a big difference by saying that the uh, efforts at economic development have failed It should be from the other way around Rather, and you could also examine Maybe the ways they were doing it Were not appropriate You know, just injecting lots of money Into yeah. infrastructure mm-hmm. investment Might not be the best way, you know To promote the Siliang mm-hmm. economic development for the Uyghurs Perhaps there could be other ways ways of doing better ways of doing so. So I'm wondering, you know, did they sort of actually examine how they implemented that policy or just decided, well, it hasn't worked so, you know, do, do this task. Yeah.
2: Okay, so the, the first question about the institutional elements there is, is an interesting one. So 2000, 2009, you have the Urumqi uh, riots and so on. So that, that in itself leads to a number of immediate decisions. So one is that Hu Jintao was embarrassed by it. So you may recall he was at the G20 That's summit right. at the time and had to fly home specifically to deal with to deal with that. So as a result of that kind of elite-level politics, the long-standing uh, uh, regional CCP chairman uh, was dismissed. So he'd been there for over 15 years. Uh, he was dismissed. So was the uh, police chief of of Rumchi and a number of others. Yet. The next step along sort of seemed to take a much longer period of time, really about two to three years. So you have some institutional wrangling, particularly within state bodies, as opposed to CCP bodies. So you had the State um, Ethnic Affairs Commission, for instance, uh, a number of high-level officials there that seemed to have been, uh, seemed to have uh, had had been put out of favour as a result of what happened in Urumqi. Uh, and as part of that process, the State Affairs Commission has actually been absorbed into party level bodies. So um, State Ethnic Affairs Commission no longer exists outside of the party. so it's actually within uh, the United Front Work Department now. Okay. so it's the reassertion of CCP control uh, over uh, a number of these key decision making uh, key decision-making uh, bodies. The other interesting one institutionally is in fact the role of specific personnel uh, in, in the, re- the rollout of the re-education process, so the current CCP chairman Chen Chenguo, um, he was previously in Tibet, so he was brought in in 27, 27 17, yeah, 2017 before that though, he was actually one of the key figures involved in the suppression of Falun Gong um, and there's, seen, there's a, the line of argument so James uh, and Latrobe has tracked some of this and this actually says we can see some real personnel connections, not only from Chen Guo but also the United Front Work Department Uh, that have been involved in the rollout of of re-education in Xinjiang. Um, In terms of economic development, there was a kind of a review of sorts. So post 2009, you also had the rollout of what was termed the Partnership Assistance Program. So this was a way in which the party attempted to get around that question of saying, "Okay, we've been throwing all this money, that might not be the best way, we need to be more specific here. So the Partnership Assistance Program um, was about targeting investments between uh, so-called brother-sister townships and cities. So you might have Hotan partnered up um, with Guangzhou or Guangdong or whatever. So a way of channeling investments into specific specific regions. Um, yet that process in itself was also muddied by this debate about the first and second generation minority policy. So one of the advocates of the second generation, uh, Ma Rong, who's a very you know, well-connected, well uh, well-known um, uh, uh, academic in Beijing, his argument was, well, actually, we need to cut the ethnic connection here between development and ethnicity, saying, actually, we need to target development assistance to areas that are simply underdeveloped, regardless of the ethnic question. Um, that's, in, that's involved. So this idea that in fact by channeling specific investments to areas that are uh, both underdeveloped developed and primarily ethnic minority we're actually reinforcing barriers between ethnic groups rather than breaking them down. Steve. Uh,
3: thanks, Michael. am thinking of the two regions, Xinjiang Tibet uh, the most recent wire in these two regions are um, very close, like in Tibet it's 2000, early 2008 right, yeah. and in Xinjiang it's 2009 mm-hmm. and the, both regions facing very similar ethnic policies from Beijing but the reactions are different and then the counter reaction for the government are quite different. I mean, what is this because of the religious teachings on one, how one reacts when being re- repressed are different or because the lo- local officials' approach are different or that Xinjiang experience will be adopted in Tibet
2: later on? Just, be, you know. Yeah, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a very interesting one actually. Um, look, I mean, I... My feeling is that actually, from the party's perspective, what's happened, well, what was occurring in Xinjiang was more threatening than what was happening in Tibet. Primarily because of the linkage that they'd made between what was happening in Xinjiang and regional and global forms of radical Islamism and terrorism. So the connection the party makes between, say, what was happening... You know, this is not just 2009. You also had a range of terrorist acts, 2011, 2012, 2013. And the party made a, a clear a clear judgment that these were connected to uh, the activities of a very small number of Uyghur militants that were then based in Afghanistan and then, then Syria. Um, and there's never really been any great clarity about whether, in fact, those connections existed. Um, and I've you know, done a lot of research on this and my co- some colleagues contributed to, to the book as well and the 2018 one and there's very little direct evidence suggesting that a organised group had a role for instance in the attack in Kunming or the 2013 the so-called SUV attack in Tiananmen Square uh, and in fact each of those incidents actually has a reasonably per- persuasive counter-narrative as well so the one in Tiananmen Square was a, a Uyghur family, a husband and wife, and I think he's either his mother or mother-in-law, um, that were in that SUV. Now, that family was from the far south of Xinjiang and Hotan and had been involved in a long-running land dispute um, with the local CCP bureau and also a number of state-owned <coughs> enterprises. And this is, in fact, a well-established source of friction and tension in the south of Xinjiang. So competition over access to land... Uh, and, and so on. So it, these things—I'm not saying that they, they there wasn't a terrorist attack; you could clearly frame it as such. But the question of the ultimate motivator of it, the party said this was directly inspired by, you know, Islamic State. Whereas there's no real evidence for that. Um, so it, it, it's very clear that the party has made those linkages, though, and that therefore the scale of the threat or insecurity that it felt in Xinjiang <coughs> is much greater than in Tibet. Um, The question is to the reaction of of individuals. Well, I mean, again this is hopefully tried to to touch on at the beginning this has been a very long running, slow burning sort of process I mean, this is not just over the last 10 years this is since 1949 really, um, where you have uh, a very clear systematic process of marginalisation of a particular ethnic group uh, in Xinjiang that is now framed in a certain way by the state Uh, and I have another colleague that contributed to the 2018 book. He argues that, in fact, the issue of Uyghur terrorism, quite unquote is a self-fulfilling prophecy, right, mm-hmm. that the party has effectively created uh, this particular dynamic. I mean, it, I don't quite go that, that far, um, but it certainly has an element to it that is that, that tracks quite well with, with what we've seen. David? Um. <coughs> yes, It is
4: said... Partly following up on Steve just said, uh, wasn't the person who was the head of the of the party boss in in Tibet? He then moved to Xinjiang, yeah, and Cheng that's Kuo. when these really rougher tactics started. They didn't try that in Tibet. Now, I mean, one, could one factor mm. be that whereas Xinjiang is bordered by very similar peoples, mm. Tibet on the other side of Tibet is not, and you could the, the it's. The, much easier to see something breaking away, mm. in a sense. Uh, There's a couple of other things. Uh, competition from the Han. I mean, you've got almost a balance of population there. Mm. And I'm sure the Han have access to all kinds of better resources and things such as that. Uh, and the other thing is the encouragement of intermarriage. This was going mm. on two or three years ago. I don't know whether it's still yeah. it's still happening or not. but. Uh,
2: mm. Yeah, I mean, the, the intermarriage one, that was encouraged a couple of years ago. It's almost now enforced. So you have images... Oh, I, haven't, I haven't put any of these up. They're images of basically enforced marriages between Uyghur and, and Han, particularly Uyghur females and, and, and Han men. Uh, and there is some anecdotal evidence here. It's that, again, there's parallels with, with, with other precedents of mass repression historically. Yeah, you have... Uh, anecdotal evidence of, uh, of certainly Uyghur f- uh, female family members doing this to ensure that their, their father or their brother doesn't get put in a re-education camp. Um, the state is also encouraging this by giving uh, uh, Han the Han uh, spouse uh, bonuses, uh, monetary rewards and so on. So it's, it's almost part of, it, it fits into this wider strategy of acculturation, of in a sense the domestication of Uyghur society. Um, the question about Xinjiang being more in, more uh, sorry, the issue of the party feeling more insecure about Xinjiang because of Central Asia. That's yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's always been the case in some ways. Um, post uh, the collapse of the Soviet Union, I mean, the, the early early to mid nineteen nineties, the party was almost obsessed about. Uh, sort of demonstration effect of the Central Asian Republics becoming independent and how that would affect uh, Uyghurs in, in Xinjiang, given that there is large, a large Uyghur diaspora population in Kazakhstan and in Kyrgyzstan. That hasn't necessarily gone away, um, but it's more complicated now because you have um, issues of uh, sort of dual citizenship as well. So there's been some reporting, for instance, there's a, a famous case of a Kazakh lady um that was employed as one of these educators in re-education camp. She herself got caught up in re-education and then was able to get out and left for Kazakhstan and her case has been uh, in front of the Kazakh um, courts about whether or not they're going to re- extradite her back back to China even though she claims Kazakh citizenship as well. Um, so there's sort of a number of different comp- complications there. Um, the one about was that Chen Chenguo, the Tibet connection in terms of the harsh you said, because um, Chen, Chen Chengguo, the current CCP chairman in Xinjiang, was previously the CCP chairman in Tibet. Um, so it, it's sort of a yes or no thing. I mean, some of the elements of re-education were already in train when Chen was transferred to Xinjiang. So the People's War on Terrorism was announced in 2014. So that's a few years before Chen officially arrives. Um but no doubt, since he's been there, you've had, in particular, more more so the um, that high-tech side of control, I think, that he's brought with him from, from Tibet. So uh, part of that process of surveillance uh, that he pioneered in Tibet was the so-called grid management system of urban areas. So you have... Um, Uh, very, very uh, centralised forms of surveillance, CCTV cameras, um, so-called neighbourhood, sorry, convenience police stations, which are the demandable blocks and roadblocks set up in a grid pattern throughout major urban areas. That was done in Lhasa and a number of other uh, major Tibetan areas first. The scale that it's been done in Xinjiang is much, much bigger
1: though. Yeah. So you had a, (coughs) a question earlier I didn't quite catchy. So we've got three in the queue now, and and, uh, if it's okay, we can take all three of them and have you give an omnibus answer. So Diego first, and then we'll go to you, Professor. Thank you.
5: Thank you very much. Um, A couple of questions about, because I'm I'm interested in the rhetorical justification from Beijing. So, taking, you know, from socialism Chinese socialism. So, is the problem from Beijing Islam in general? And therefore... He, the counter-terrorist policy works everywhere in China but it's more intensified in Xinjiang because of the concentration of is the problem the, U- the Xinjiang's Islam? Is that considered a different kind of Islam? Or, uh, or is the problem just with this particular ethnic group uh, interpretation of Islam? So how is is it uh, justified? Um, and the second part is, is the problem the in terms of re-education, the problem is the religious component, obviously a political component as well. But so, when the objective is to re-educate them in a way of making them atheists, socialists, how is it framed? Hmm. That's
1: the, the
6: yeah. Okay. Um, two things, two points. 2009, the Police Act came in. The People's Armed Police Force hmm. Act came in which made counter-terrorism, counter-insurgency, you will call it the bigger term. It's only like word terrorism um, That's a police operative. Mm. It took a couple of years to transfer it from the People's uh, Yeah, uh, People's PLA, PLA, PLA. And mm. number two is, I was doing a lot of research at the time, on, uh, 10 years ago, on the Arunchee riot. One thing was noted, they Chinese, and correct me if I'm wrong, because I haven't looked at it recently, they never, they never, when that official white paper came out, they never claimed it was Eden. Eden wasn't mentioned at all. In a no,
3: no, no. A no.
6: But it, it, at nine o'clock, I think it was nine o'clock at night. Fifteen areas broke out. That requires some organisation. You don't just think get fifteen. The other thing is, someone when they were building the trees by the side of the road, they had things, sticks. Well, they called them sticks, but basically they were um, pickaxe handles, and they were holding the trees up with pickaxe handles. So as the Riot, which is more than a riot, occurred. All the locals, the Uyghurs, picked up the pickaxe sandals. That the, the wood sticks are pickaxe sandals. So the, there was more to it than what's yeah, yeah. that's ever come out of
3: yeah. it. I you so. Uh, this this is a fairly expensive business. How long can this be kept up? I asked because of two things that I've seen recently. One was uh, some winching by 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 local government a authorities. About the cost to them, to yeah. their individual budgets, and how, they, and how they wanted money out of, out of the central organisation. And the second one was I saw, a, I saw a contract translated by Google um, for a command for a uh, job commands mm. uh, for a security surveillance command centre in a city, and it was, it was under that bot, sort of buy, that buy-operate-transfer uh, sort of private-public public partnership mode, and that had an operate for ten years. So, how long is this going to go on for?
2: Alright, um, maybe the first one. Sorry, the last one first. Um, look, my I, I think that it's indefinite. This is the way in which the party under Xi Jinping has decided that it can finally resolve its Xinjiang problem. Um, because, as I said, so this has been going on for decades now, as far as the party is concerned, about how it can fundamentally achieve this objective of integration and assimilation. This, it now seems to believe that this is the way forward. Uh, and it's not just in terms of, you know, this idea, that it, like that contract that you mentioned has this idea of a 10-year contract, so this says this is a long-term process, but also the fact that the re-education centres, they're actually building more of them. Um, they're also uh, hiring more um, contracted private sector security firms uh, to, to man these things, because they, they don't necessarily have the PAP or even PLA or even Bing Tuan uh, militia to man these things. Um, so it seems to be an indefinite uh, policy trajectory that it's on here. In terms of the money side of the equation, that, that's kind of the big question about, you know, it, this costs a lot of money to run this entire system uh, throughout a province as big as Xinjiang. Um, so, yeah, maybe there will be a tipping point reached where there is, in fact, a real uh, economic strain, uh, both on the central government, but more more specifically probably on the, the regional the regional government. Um the question on how it is framed. Um, look, the, most of the official documentation frames this as a counter-terrorism measure, which suggests, like you said at the beginning of your your kind of uh, your comment and question, that this might be applicable to the rest of China. Yet if you dig down a little bit deeper, certainly in, term, in terms of the practice of re-education and the practice of the, of the camps themselves, I would argue that, in fact, the real obstacle the party sees is not so much Islam in a general sense, it's in fact Uyghur identity. Uh, and f- more specifically, the fact that the, the Uyghur identity is so uh, different from Han Chinese identity. So it's not just about Islam, it's about Uyghur language, Uyghur culture, uh, Uyghur heritage. So within some of, some of the camps, for instance, you have uh, not j- the indoctrination sessions are all carried out in Mandarin. If... Uh, a detainee doesn't know Mandarin. They're forced to learn Mandarin. Only Mandarin can be spoken at all times. If you speak Uyghur, you are subject to various forms of punishment. Uh, so it seems to me that this suggests that it's actually about it's about the ethnic identity of the group itself. It's not necessarily about Islam, more broadly. Um, oh, and uh, Arumchi, 2009. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, the Etim one... It, that wasn't mentioned, yet Rabia Kadir was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so Rabia Kadir was held up to be kind of the, you know, the black hand that had yeah. somehow run all of this. Uh, and then sort of the secondary blame was placed on the National Endowment for Democracy and the CIA. Yeah. Oh the CIA. Right. So, right. Um, but in terms of the actual riot itself, there was sort of two Two to three phases, actually. So one was the first protest in front of the, in People's Square, which was led by university students from Xinjiang Normal University, which was then dispersed. Uh, you then had a reaction of sorts from, I suppose, quote unquote, everyday or normal uh, Uyghurs uh, that 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 involved in that the the uh, the more violent aspect of the riot. You then had people's armed police units being flown in. Yeah, to a Rumshi that essentially violently cleaned up that riot. Then the next day you had Han Han counter protests and vigilantism. So you have sort of number of different number of different phases to it. Okay, and Stephen's got the last question.
3: Oh, just a comment. I think the international reaction to Beijing's policy is also very interesting. We've got twenty two mostly European countries hmm. standing up and denounce Beijing's policy. Yep. But those European countries not denouncing Beijing are mainly recipients of BRI money. At the same time, we got 37 countries stand up and support Beijing's policy. Uh, 17 of them are Muslim countries. Especially Turkey not appearing on that hmm. list. Yeah. Hmm. I think that's that says something about the strategic importance of BRI. Yeah, mm. it's yes.
2: yeah. I I didn't get to the. Uh, slide after this but sorry I went too far Uh, that's all the social credit stuff Um, yeah BRI I mean this figures into BRI pretty clearly Um, so you have like you say a number of those countries that have signed up to this letter supporting or quite unquote supporting um, Beijing's policies in Xinjiang are very much involved in not just the, I suppose, the, the most overt elements of BRI, but also the so-called digital Silk Road element to BRI. Um, and this involves a number of large Chinese uh, tech companies that have been essentially given the green light to go out via BRI agreements to road test elements of that surveillance apparatus in BRI countries. So one interesting one was in Zimbabwe. So uh, Cloudwalk, which is a startup tech company... Uh, a Chinese tech company essentially used the Zimbabwe case to pilot uh, and train its uh, artificial intelligence element to its facial recognition technology uh, to sort of, you know, OK, let's look at African faces and see how we can then uh, feed that into our existing database to track individuals. So there are, there are a number of interlinkages between BRI and the certainly the, the, the technological side to the re-education process in so Zimbabwe.
1: Okay, um, excellent topical information. And again, really chilling. <laughs> really something. Please join me and thank you. <laughs>